occasions when music has the power to transport. That you did, Miss Emily. Thank you. Our scripture lesson is found in James chapter 1, beginning at verse 17 through verse 27. Every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In fulfillment of his own purpose, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You must understand this, my beloved. Let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Therefore, rid yourselves of all sordidness and rank growth of wickedness, and welcome with meekness the implanted word that has the power to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they are like those who look at themselves in a mirror, for they immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. If any think they are religious and do not bridle their tongue, but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray. Bless, O Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Peter Enns has written a book called The Sin of Certainty. There's a chapter in it titled, God Wants You Dead. Yeah, think about that a second. He says this, the life of Christian faith is more than agreeing with a set of beliefs about God, morality, or how we read the Bible. It means being so intimately connected to Christ that his crucifixion is ours. His death is our death, and his life is our life, which is hardly something you can grasp with your mind. It has to be experience. In fact, it is the experience. We're to be so crucified, in fact, that we read in Colossians, it says, you have died and your life is hidden 
within Christ in God. Think about that. To be so dead in Christ that our lives are hidden. That's strong language and not easy to picture. Being hidden in Christ sounds unsettling and mystical, and it should. All this talk of dying and being crucified and hidden doesn't describe a one-time moment of conversion when we become Christians as if somehow that's final. This kind of dying describes a mode of existence that we agree to, to enter into as a holy space where we follow Jesus, surrendering control of our lives to the life of Christ, to the one who lives in me. James doesn't mince words in his letter. There's Trouble in River City, and the folks there with all of his preaching don't seem to be getting a clue. He's imminently practical in his witness, and he says to the first century community that this letter is going to deal with your infighting and anger. It goes to the very heart of the nature of ministry and the divisions that have grown over who to serve, who's poor enough to need serving, and whose responsibility is it. There are divisions between one group and another, and apparently the fighting has gotten ugly. So his response is to address both sides of the ugliness. He says, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to anger, and slow to speak. Now with that statement, James could have stopped right there and addressed every issue that the church has ever had. He tells everyone simply to take a deep breath and to chill. Slow down. Stop being so reactionary, whether you're right or whether you're wrong. For your anger does not produce God's righteousness. Why? Why does he go to all this trouble? Because the community has grown to confuse right belief with righteousness. What do we mean by righteousness? Well, righteousness is the same word that Paul uses over and over again in his letters. James is simply saying that you could, you could, in effect believe all of the right things, say all of the right things, do all of the right things, but you won't find or be living in God's kinds of righteousness when you're snapping and arguing in the community. They have become all about the fight. 
and they've missed the bigger picture of ministry and community. Jane gets to the issue at hand and defines what ministry is. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to take care of the orphans and the widows in their distress. When it comes to faith, serving those who need serving is not extracurricular. It's not a nice little extra that we get to after we've had church. It is our faith. It's fundamental to who we are as Christ followers. Take it away, and you no longer have faith as Jesus practiced it. So the long and short of it, the church was behaving badly, and ministry was not happening. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to get along? I did a little research just to figure out if anybody had written anything about it, and by golly, you can Google anything. There's an article by George Dvorsky says, Why Your Brain Cannot Let Go of a Grudge. He basically says human beings are masters at resentment. It's a characteristic that goes back to the beginning of time. Feuds seem to have been an indelible aspect of the human condition. So why is it? Basically, he says we are wired for it. It's not just that we, we seek to resolve the conflict or that there's pleasure or reward in it, but we have this desire to get to the end of it. If we could just get to the end of this struggle, then somebody would understand, by golly, how they're wrong. And they'd have learned a lesson, and we could move on. It is a craving or a desire of ours to take this angst in our minds and have others acknowledge their fault and the harm that they've done and ultimately to learn how not to do it again. The real deep satisfaction comes from knowing that the person who has harmed us has changed their ways. Oh my goodness. It takes a lot of energy in your brain to be in a feud. Because don't we just chew it and chew it and spit it up and chew it again and get it out and look at it and chew it some more? And it goes on and on and on. Our brain takes up enormous energy trying to figure all of this out. Understand, though, my friends, just as James did, that these feuds have an opportunity cost. And it means that there are billions of other things we can't be thinking about or doing that reflect the body of Christ.
The nuts and bolts of James' message this morning are three. First, all good comes from God. Second, ours is no ordinary life, and if you think so, you're probably wasting it. We have died to ourselves so that we can be raised with Christ. What, ev- what more enormous gift is that? And third, that when we finally get over ourselves, by golly, we've got work to do. As to the first, all good comes from God. That is an incredibly bold statement coming from James. He says every generous act of giving, not some generous acts, not only Christian acts of giving, whatever those are, but all generous acts of giving are good. And to that we might add all acts of mercy or advocacy or support or friendship. All we do that is good comes from God. James was a keen observer of human nature and he paid close attention to the details of everyday living. He noticed that these little things, these small gifts, these expressions of kindness and generosity and compassion were the nuts and bolts that held everyday life together. They were the scaffold of the community and the social order that blessed people. That's why it was so concerned about the words that we use because we make a difference in the way we relate to each other. We express our motives, our intentions, our beliefs, and our emotional life. Everything we say and do translates somehow to someone. Julian of Norwich, a 14th century English visionary, was 30 years old when she began to receive visions of Christ. She had been sick for about three days, so sick that on the fourth day, her priest came to her to give her last rites. He placed a crucifix in front of her, and that's when it happened. She became as well as she had ever been. And she saw two things. The first was that crucifix had Jesus' face on it with the crown of thorns and little drops of blood. And she understood how he had hurt for her heart. And then she saw something small about the size of a hazelnut placed in her hand. And she said, what is this? Fifteen years and fifteen visions later, she was still asking God, what does this little thing mean? When the answer came to her, what? Do you wish to know your Lord's meaning in this? Well, know it well. Love was his meaning. Who revealed it to you? Love. Why does he reveal it to you? For love, remain in this, and you will know more of the same. 
all the good that we have in this life comes from God. And all good translates God's presence. And it's the little things in which for love and by love and with love that we change the world. Have you understood it? You have no ordinary life. We continually die to ourselves so that Christ can be raised in us. Becoming hidden in Christ is so that Christ is what's seen in us as an ongoing process of growth and transformation. We are dying and rising daily so we can be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's how Paul put it. Being a practical man, James said that there are ways to live that makes Christ more real in our exchange with each other. And one of the biggies is quick to listen, slow to speak. The importance of listening so that we build community and keep peace at all levels of society cannot be overstated. Being slow to anger reminds us of Psalm 103 verse 8 where God is slow to anger and abounding in love. Now, let's just get it. This is hard work. Neither being right nor angry facilitates our relationships to others. It doesn't contribute to the willingness to repair the community nor put any peace in our hearts. It's only by persevering in relationship as a community of faith that's what prepares the ground for the word of God and makes it visible. I mentioned to you earlier about Brian McLaren. He has a great book out called We Make the Road by Walking. And he says if you really want to be like Christ, if you listen to the Spirit, here's what will happen to you. You'll be at a party with a lot of folks having fun. And in a corner you'll notice a person who's alone and feeling awkward and not knowing anyone. The Spirit will draw you to that person in need and you'll become the bridge that connects the outsider to the insider. If you listen to the Spirit, here's what will happen to you. You're in a position of power with more people of power around you who want to appeal to you for their vote or your support or your cooperation. They'll have a lot to offer if you comply. But the Spirit will draw you to offer your power for those who have no table of privilege. Those who are homeless, sick in body or mind, the last, the least, the lost, the alien, the different, the odd. The Spirit will ask you to join your heart to theirs so that community belongs with them too. 
If you listen to the Spirit, here's what will happen to you. You'll realize that someone is angry or resentful toward you. You'll hear that there are false things being said behind your back. But the Spirit will draw you toward humility. And you'll say, I have a problem and I need your help. I feel there may be a tension or a distance or a brokenness between us. I want to close the gap and be sure that things between us are good. Whatever happens, whatever happens, know that the Spirit is at work in you. G.K. Chesterton may have said it the best. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. We have to die to self day in and day out to be and look like the body of Christ Because when we've gotten over ourselves, the letter of James stresses the importance of getting to work, to the concrete practice of love. We must not merely listen to the word, but we must be doers of it. We act. Receiving the word also means putting it into practice, meditating and contemplating great stuff, but not enough. In a language different from St. Paul, James says that people are justified by their works and not by faith alone. That's because James puts love in practice being the same as and closely linked to the worship of God. You can't separate the two. For James, one cannot put prayer into action and true faith and practice it without being a part of the realities of life and making it better. James is convinced that what God considers pure and genuine religion is action. It means taking care of those orphans and widows in their suffering and keeping oneself faithful persevering and kind all while in the real world. Why? Because his practical approach has huge implications. Now stick with me just a minute. This may seem to have gone like this for a second, but hold on. I've been rereading Barbara Brown Taylor's book, An Altar in the World. In it, she tells the story of leading a spiritual retreat for 34 or so lay and clergy participants, and she wants them to embody the scripture, to get it into their bones, to be hidden in Christ. And so she says she wants them to uh, embody the Beatitudes. They have to act them out, not say them. To which all of these grown-ups go, nuh-uh. 
Kids act out, we study. And she says, just, just do it. To which one woman who's a, uh, an Episcopalian priest says, all right, I got the one who dies, who mourns and comforts. That way I don't even have to move. Well, she tells of two of them being acted out, and one is for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they came back, and this little small group of people were baby birds. You could tell because they had big old hand mouths waiting for mama bird to come feed them. And as they acted it out, the beaks got smaller and the birds got bigger. And when they got full, they flew to be filled with God's grace is to fly. Then they got to the one, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Well, there was that woman, smack down right where she said she was going to be. One of the women in her group cradled her head in her lap Two knelt beside her and two stood up and bent over like they were a cathedral over them. And they just stood there, frozen. Barbara Brown Taylor says, I don't know if it was 30 seconds, if it was five minutes, nobody knew. But out of the middle of all of that quiet and stillness, a sob broke out. And the woman in the middle, her body began to heave with tears. And then everybody in their group began to cry. And she goes, we didn't know what to do. We're in the arts now. We're the ones frozen going, oh, did they plan this? Or did they not? When they got it in an instant that the woman who had been dead was now raised in Christ. We don't stay there. God doesn't want us to die without new life, but to be hidden in him and so alive in Christ that our language and our listening and our community reflects it because there's so much to do. Make no mistake. When we are dead to ourselves and hidden in Christ, in a community that can work through its struggles so that Christ is seen, we aren't just serving widows and orphans, we are in the process of raising the dead. We have a ministry, my friends. ministry of Jesus Christ you are no ordinary person for Christ is within you thanks be to God for dying and rising in the one who loves us amen